Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hi, I'm Libby, and I'll be reading you today's Cape Cod Times, dated Friday, January 12th, 2024. The weather outlook for tonight looks much like it did last Friday. It will be sunny today with highs in the mid-40s, but tonight it dips down into the 30s and there will be heavy late-night rain. Watch out for flooding. On Saturday, the rain continues, as does the wind. It will pour in the morning and be mostly cloudy in the afternoon with highs in the 50s. On Sunday, the highs only reach 40. It will be cooler, breezy in the morning, then another late shower, and the lows will dip down Sunday night into the 20s. By special request from a few of our faithful listeners, we now present the lottery numbers. For Thursday's numbers game midday drawing, the numbers were 2, 2, 0, and 6. Thursday's evening drawing numbers were 9, 5, 7, and 0. For Thursday's mass cash drawing, we have numbers 19, 20, 24, 29, and 30. For the Powerball drawing on Wednesday, we have numbers 25, 40, 43, 48, 50, and an extra ball of 11. And finally, for Mega Millions on Tuesday, we have numbers 12, 15, 32, 33, 53, and 24. The lead story on page one of today's newspaper is headlined, Unleashed, Barnstable Looks to Keep Off-Season Beach Walking for Dogs Unchanged, by Heather McCarran of the Cape Cod Times. During the off-season, when the ocean is wilder and the beaches are free of sunbathing outlanders, One of Layla Gould's favorite activities is to walk the abandoned sand, stretching her legs, filling her lungs with salted air, and, perhaps most of all, barking at seagulls. Layla is an Australian shepherd with an instinct to herd, and visiting favorite spots like Hyannis's Keys Memorial Beach on the end of a leash is one of the best ways to practice her vocal corralling skills without bothering the neighbors and while also getting exercise. First of all, you have to clear the beach of seagulls. This is extraordinarily important, said Toby Gould of Barnstable with a chuckle, describing the beach-going joy of his canine family member. For him and his wife Mary, time walking with Layla along the shore, often at sunrise, is cherished by all three of them. But it's limited to the quieter months between late spring and late summer, and as weather permits. That's why the couple is particularly pleased the town is backing down from trimming more than a month off their beach-walking calendar. Proposed changes to Barnstable's dog control regulations, first presented at a town manager's hearing in October, called for extending the existing seasonal ban on dog walking on designated saltwater bathing beaches, having it start on April 1st instead of on May 15th and running through September 15th. But that's no longer the plan. Town Manager Mark Ells announced in his most recent town manager report to the town council. Officials will keep the May 15th to September 15th ban intact and instead added a clause allowing town officials to close sections of beaches to dogs for public health and safety reasons 
and for endangered species and natural resources protection as needed. I'm thrilled. This is exactly what we wanted, said Gould, speaking by phone Monday. He and his wife were out on Keys Beach Monday morning with Layla, and they weren't the only ones braving the January cold with their canines. Like many fellow residents, the Goulds take their pup to walk various beaches just about every day when it's permitted. It's great for us. We both grew up on the ocean, so we like to see it, and the dog does too, Gould said. Dog walking is normally prohibited from late spring through the summer on Dowses, Calmus, Craigville, Covell, Veterans Park, Eugenia Fortis, Keys Memorial, Loop, Millway, and Sandy Neck, the public beach only, beaches. The proposal to extend the dog walking ban, along with another change related to kennels and multiple dogs, touched off a flurry of opinions during a nearly two-month public comment period this fall. According to the town manager's report, 83 comments, both negative and positive, were received between October 18th and December 8th. 61% of those addressed dog walking on the beaches. Gould was among many who spoke out against extending the ban. While he acknowledged areas of some beaches provide nesting habitat for piping plovers, a threatened shorebird that begins returning to Massachusetts in late March and early April, he thinks the measures the town takes to protect them are effective. Plus, dogs are not allowed to roam freely, affording additional protection. Every year, he said, the town erects fencing and signs to warn early season beachgoers of the presence of sensitive wild populations like the plovers. I'm a member of the Audubon Society, so it's not that I don't like birds, Gould said, but this was ridiculous. I looked at a whole bunch of beaches and no one else has done that on the Cape. Nina Coleman, Director of Natural Resources and Sandy Neck Beach Park Manager, on Tuesday said the decision to maintain the usual May 15th to September 15th ban was in response to the public's comments. We definitely had a decent amount of folks respond with concerns about that April 1st date and that they really like to use the beaches, she said. So we changed the language, so now we're going to have the ability to close sections of those bathing beaches that have acting plover pairs. It seemed like a nice compromise while still protecting the birds. Some of the town's beaches attract a number of breeding pairs, and in the last few years, the plover population has shown signs of rebounding, Coleman said. Sandy Neck, she said, is one of the town's beaches that has quite a substantial population of plovers. April 1st is about the time when her team begins ramping up protection of nesting habitat. Proposed changes pertaining to owners with multiple dogs and those who board dogs or sell puppies for more than two litters a year were also modified as a result of public comments. These changes call for separate kennel or multiple dog licenses and increase the kennel license fee from $50 to $100. Town officials worked with a representative of the American Kennel Club to better clarify kennel and multiple dog definitions, according to Ell's report. Another change under consideration amends the town's dog licensing dates. Instead of licenses issued July 1st and remaining effective to June 30th of the next year, owners would need to renew dog licenses annually on January 1st with licenses effective until December 31st. The dog license fee would also increase from $10 to $13 for dogs that have not been spayed or neutered and from $7 to $10 for those that have. The latest draft of the proposed dog control regulations is available on the town manager and Marine and Environmental Affairs webpages. 
Updates will be posted as officials move forward with approval of these modified regulations. Belichick's tenure as Pat's coach at an end. Nate Davis of the USA Today. The New England Patriots are transitioning from BB to AB after Belichick. In a seismic move that seemed almost inconceivable not even a year ago, the six-time Super Bowl champions parted with longtime head coach Bill Belichick on Thursday, according to multiple reports, in the aftermath of a 4-13 campaign, his worst in 24 seasons with the organization. Hired by Pat's owner, Robert Kraft, in 2000 to replace Pete Carroll, Belichick was on the sideline for all six of the franchise's Lombardi Trophy-winning performances and guided New England to three additional Super Sundays. No NFL head coach has won or appeared in more Super Bowls. His 333 wins, including playoffs, rank second all-time in the NFL's 104-season history trailing only Hall of Famer Don Shula's 347. Despite Belichick's incredible resume, which also includes two rings as defensive coordinator of the New York Giants, his fortunes, and the Patriots, took a decided turn following legendary quarterback Tom Brady's decision to leave the team as a free agent following the 2019 season. New England finished last in the AFC East in 2023 for the first time since 2000. Belichick's first in Foxborough. The Pats have only made the postseason once since TB12 bolted and have not won a playoff game since then. A series of questionable personnel and coaching moves over the past four years, all with Belichick's fingerprints on them, have been largely responsible for an offensive spiral that included the second fewest points scored in the league this season. But what a ride it was before reaching the end of the line. Picked in the sixth round of the 2000 draft, just months after Belichick's arrival, Brady, his coach, and the organization at large experienced a meteoric rise after the University of Michigan product replaced injured starter Drew Bledsoe in week two of the 2001 campaign and didn't relinquish the role for the next 19 seasons, even though Belichick was widely criticized at the time for not restoring Bledsoe as the starter once he was well enough to play. But it was the right call, Brady earning the first of five Super Bowl MVP nods following that 2001 Magic Carpet Ride, when the Patriots shocked the heavily favored St. Louis Rams in Super Bowl 36 to win their first championship. Brady won a seventh Super Bowl ring. He has more personally than any franchise in the league does collectively, with the Tampa Buccaneers after signing with them in 2020. Since he left Foxborough, the Patriots' lone playoff appearance was a 47-17 loss to the Bills in Buffalo at the end of the 2021 season. With Brady in the lineup, Belichick won 17 AFC East titles. Without him, not one. And while it would be fair to expect a fall-off for any team after losing the quarterback who was a primary driver behind a dynasty, it seemed Belichick egregiously mismanaged the position. After a 7-9 season with Cam Newton in 2020, while Brady was leading the Bucks to their Super Bowl 55 win, the Patriots drafted Mac Jones in the first round in 2021. Jones responded with a Pro Bowl rookie season that landed New England a wild card berth. Yet he has regressed since, playing for three different coordinators in his three seasons. 
Belichick's handling of his staff in 2022, especially critiqued after Matt Patricia and Joe Judge, neither assistant with a robust offensive background, worked with Jones. Bailey Zapp replaced him as QB1 for the final six weeks of the 2023 season. And the problems didn't end there. While few would ever question Belichick's chops as a football tactician, he's been far less adept as the Patriots' de facto general manager. He's certainly drafted and acquired dozens of good players, many discarded by other franchises, and typically found ways to maximize their talents and mask their weaknesses. But Brady, widely acknowledged as the greatest quarterback of all time, also covered up a lot. Belichick has always had a spotty at best record evaluating wide receivers, especially young ones, and had a lengthy history of missing on second round draft picks, regardless of position. Aside from linebacker Matt Judon, Belichick has also misappropriated tens of millions in free agency commitments since Brady's departure. The Patriots arguably their division's least talented team the past two seasons. Belichick, perhaps feeling the pressure of Kraft's mandate for the Patriots to reclaim their title-contending pedigree, also appeared to break character at the league's 2023 annual spring meeting, referring reporters to his historic achievements when asked why fans should be optimistic about the upcoming season. It was a jarring about-face for a coach who'd always preached staying focused on the moment, never looking back, while not peeking past the next opponent. His remark even drew criticism from former team captain Teddy Brucci, a member of Belichick's first three Super Bowl teams and the 2007 squad that remains the only one to post an undefeated regular season since the 1972 Miami Dolphins. But the angst preceding the 2023 season proved justified, ahead of a cellar-dwelling season. Belichick also went 37-45 in his first head coaching stint with the Cleveland Browns from 1991-95. to And yet two last-place seasons among 24 in New England alternatively serve as a testament to what he's accomplished, including a sterling 30-12 postseason record for the Patriots. Brady will be a first-ballot Hall of Famer, but Belichick also coached Canton-minted players such as Ty Law and Richard Seymour with Rob Gronkowski, and perhaps others sure to follow. Which is to say, despite the post-dynastic downturn in New England, it seems highly likely quite a few of the league's 31 other clubs will be all too eager to interview Belichick and afford him the opportunity Brady had to win elsewhere, while tracking down Shula's record. This is a commentary piece titled Belichick's Next Stop, Maybe It Should Be Nantucket, by Chris McDaniel of the Patriot Ledger. After parting ways with the New England Patriots, Bill Belichick is a man without an island currently. Well, that isn't entirely true. Bill Belichick has long been a fan of Nantucket. He owns a compound in Sconset and has not been quiet about his affinity for the island. Oh boy, I don't think you've got enough space in your paper, said Belichick when the Cape Cod Times asked about what he enjoyed about Nantucket in 2005. Nantucket High just so happens to have an opening for head football coach. A marriage made in heaven? Okay, maybe I'm being tongue-in-cheek here, but there's like a 0.1% chance of this happening. Belichick clearly wants to continue his coaching career. Yes, the chance to break Don Shula's all-time NFL wins record 
is tempting, but the call of the island is just as strong. Here are five reasons why Belichick could ditch the NFL to lead the Whalers. One, Belichick loves Nantucket. Who could forget that in 2020, Belichick manned the NFL Draft Command Center from his home in Nantucket with the help of his dog? Belichick has long been tied to the island. He began buying homes in 1979 and has amassed what's been called a compound on the island. He's a seasonal resident currently, but coaching high school ball would allow him to spend even more time there. Two, he wouldn't be the first. There are loads of coaches in Massachusetts high school football with ties to the NFL. Vernon Crawford, a former New England Patriot, just wrapped up his first year as Quincy High's football coach. Jermaine Wiggins, who played for Belichick, had a one-year foray at Brockton High. Brian St. Pierre, a quarterback with four different teams, has built St. John's Prep into a powerhouse. But there's one comparison that's particularly apt here, Mike Sherman. Sherman, a Norwood native, coached the Green Bay Packers for six seasons from 2000 through 2005 and was also the head coach at Texas A&M. After a year removed from coaching in the NFL, Sherman became Nosset High's football coach. Before taking the job at Nosset, Sherman was a West Dennis resident. My wife Karen has put up with a lot in regard to my career and was happy to have unpacked her last box, said Sherman to the Cape Cod Times when he was hired. We've been coming here almost every summer over the last 30 plus years as a family, so we felt this was a natural fit for us to call Cape Cod home. Sherman's two-year tenure ultimately finished with a 4-18 record. He resigned to allow the school to hire a coach who worked in the building. Number three, sick of the hoopla? Judging by his press conference antics, Belichick has never been a fan of the circus that surrounds professional sports. Belichick loves football, but doesn't seem to be a fan of some of the miscellaneous distractions that come with being in the NFL. There's none of that coaching high school football. Yes, there's plenty of pressure on high school coaches, but it pales in comparison to the NFL. There's no more salary negotiations or QB controversies that handle the programming for Felger and Maz all week. Just football. For a football junkie, could there be a better retirement gig than coaching on Friday nights in his favorite place? And at 71, and with the only NFL job openings seemingly requiring rebuilds, now could be the time to settle down. And four and five, Nantucket needs a revival. The Whalers have a proud football tradition, having won four Super Bowls, but Nantucket has fallen on hard times in recent years with a 4-15 to mark over the previous two seasons. Belichick took the Patriots from a middling franchise to the most dominant dynasty in the NFL's history. Although Nantucket has struggled recently, there's a winning DNA in the program that could be resurrected with the right skipper. Needy Fund Helps Single Mom with Rent by Eric Williams of the Cape Cod Times. Federal housing aid programs can be a big help to Cape and Islands families who are dealing with the difficulties of high housing costs, slow wage growth, and seasonal employment. Eligibility for the programs is based on income and local rental rates. The income part of the equation came into play for one of our neighbors, a single mom with teenagers. Now that her kids are older and child care costs have been reduced, she transitioned to full-time work. The additional income increased her rent by 50%. Our neighbor needed help to bridge the gap until she received her new paycheck. 
She reached out to the Cape Cod Times Needy Fund, and thanks to your generous donations, she received the help she needed. She expressed sincere gratitude and said she felt more optimistic about her family's future. The nonprofit Cape Cod Times Needy Fund has provided emergency financial assistance to thousands of Cape Codders and Islanders since 1936. That assistance is made possible because of the continued generosity of neighbors helping neighbors. The Needy Fund provides short-term emergency assistance to Cape and Islands residents so they can continue to go to work and or stay in their homes. People in need submit their requests for help to the Needy Fund, which in turn pays for the goods or services, a medical bill, for example, through a voucher system. No cash is given to Needy Fund recipients. Donations, which are tax-deductible, may be made online at theneedyfund.org. Checks payable to the Cape Cod Times Needy Fund can also be mailed to that fund, P.O. Box 36 in Hyannis. Those needing assistance may contact the Needy Fund at 800-422-1446. The fundraising goal this season is $1.6 million, and every donation helps, thanks to everyone who has made a donation to the Cape Cod Times Needy Fund. Total contributions to date are $1,609,050. Wind, rain, possible flooding head for Cape on Friday night by Eric Williams of the Cape Cod Times. The hits keep coming for weather-weary Cape Codders. The third storm in a week is set to debut as we move into the weekend. According to the National Weather Service forecast discussion, Another powerful storm system affects our region Friday night into Saturday. The usual suspects, strong to damaging wind gusts, rain, and coastal flooding are possible during the time frame. The National Weather Service has issued a high wind watch for eastern Massachusetts, including the Cape and Islands, in effect from late Friday night through Saturday afternoon. Southeast winds of 30 to 40 miles per hour are possible with gusts up to 60. Tree damage and power outages are possible, and travel could be difficult for high-profile vehicles, according to the watch. The National Weather Service has also issued a coastal flood watch, in effect from Saturday morning through Saturday afternoon, for Barnstable, Dukes, and Nantucket counties around the time of high tide. Up to one foot of inundation above ground level is possible in low-lying areas near shorelines and tidal waterways, according to the watch which adds that minor coastal flooding occurs in Provincetown, in the vicinity of Race Point Road and Provincetown Municipal Airport. In Truro, backwater flooding occurs along the Pamet River. Bill Leatham, meteorologist at the National Weather Service in Boston, their Norton office, said the upcoming storm is not as intense a system as what we saw in the middle of the week. He added that Cape Cod could expect an inch of rain or perhaps a bit more during the storm, and that the winds wouldn't be quite as gusty as the midweek storm. Latham raised the concern that the weekend weather could affect trees that have been weakened by previous storms. Lurking on the horizon is the possibility of stormy weather early next week. This could possibly bring snow to the region. Latham said it was too early to determine the track of the weather system and that it was possible that it could track to the east, lessening the effects. Here's the Hyannis forecast from the National Weather Service. Today, sunny with a high near 44, northwest winds 6 to 9 miles per hour becoming south in the afternoon. 
Tonight, rain likely, then rain and possibly a thunderstorm after 1 a.m. Low around 35. Windy with a southeast wind 7 to 17 miles per hour, increasing to 20 to 30. Wind gusts as high as 46 miles per hour. Chance of precipitation is 100%. New rainfall amounts between a quarter and half of an inch are possible. On Saturday, rain and possibly a thunderstorm before 1. Then a slight chance of rain between 1 and 2. Highs near 53. Windy with a southeast wind 33 to 38 miles per hour, becoming southwest 22 to 27 miles per hour in the afternoon. Winds could gust as high as 55 miles per hour. Chance of precipitation is 100%. Saturday night, partly cloudy with a low around 31. Windy with a west wind around 30 with gusts as high as 44. Sunday, mostly sunny with a high near 39. Windy with a west wind 26 to 29 miles per hour with gusts as high as 44. Sunday night, partly cloudy with a low around 25. Breezy with a west wind 20 to 24 with gusts as high as 36. Monday, which is also Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Partly sunny with a high near 37. Southwest winds around 17 miles per hour. Monday night, mostly cloudy with a low around 24. West winds 11 to 16 miles per hour. Tuesday, a chance of rain and snow. Mostly cloudy with a high near 35. Northwest winds 11 to 13 miles per hour. Chance of precipitation is 40%. And finally, on Tuesday night, a chance of rain and snow. Mostly cloudy, with a low around 21. Blustery, with a northwest wind 14 to 20 miles per hour, with gusts as high as 30. Chance of precipitation is 50%. What do gas prices look like on Cape Cod? By Ozgi Terzugolo of the USA Today Network. State gas prices fell for the second consecutive week and reached an average of $3.14 per gallon of regular fuel on Monday, down from last week's price of $3.15 per gallon, according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration. The average fuel price in the state has fallen about 17 cents since last month. According to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, gas prices across the state in the last year have been as low as $3.14 this week, and as high as 376 on August 7th. Gas stations in Bourne offer drivers regular gas as low as $2.85 per gallon on Thursday. But as drivers cross the bridges and travel farther east, prices rise. Hyannis gas prices at four different stations ranged from $2.97 to $3.13 per gallon on Thursday, according to Gas Buddy. A Shell station in Dennis sold regular gas for $3.35 per gallon. At Cumberland Farms in Provincetown, regular gas was $3.59 per gallon, according to Gas Buddy. A year ago, the average gas price in Massachusetts was 5% higher at $3.30 per gallon. The average gas price in the United States last week was $3.07 making prices in the state about 2.1% higher than the nascent average. The average national gas price is down from last week's average of $3.09 per gallon. 
The USA Today Network is publishing localized versions of this story on its news sites across the country, generated with data from the U.S. Energy Information Administration. We've reached the halfway point of our program, and regular listeners are aware that at this stage of the broadcast, we move to the obituaries. Our first obituary is for Norma L. Pollitt. Norma L. Pollitt, aged 92, of East Falmouth, passed away peacefully at home, surrounded by her loving family, on January 8th. She was the beloved daughter of the late Charles Harrison and Marion Fleming Harrison. Norma graduated from Roger Williams School of Nursing, the class of 1952. She worked as a registered nurse as she traveled all over the country and ultimately at Falmouth Hospital for many years until her retirement. She was a member of the Daughters of the American Revolution, the North Falmouth Village Association, as well as secretary and volunteered at the Red Cross. She was also a Sunday school teacher and Cub Scout den leader. She enjoyed needlepoint, knitting, her times at Old Silver Beach, boating to and from the islands on her son's boat. Most of all, spending time with her family. She was a loving mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother, and will be dearly missed by all who loved her. Norma is survived by three sons, three grandchildren, and three great-grandchildren, and many nieces and nephews. Services will be held at a later date. For the online guestbook and condolences, please visit the website of Chapman Funeral. Muriel Lynn Multhrop. On January 1st, after a long and hard-fought battle with Parkinson's disease, Muriel Lynn Multhrop peacefully ended her journey on this earth. She will be deeply missed and forever loved. Lynn was born in Watertown, Connecticut, and graduated from Watertown High School in 1958. She accomplished her goal of becoming a nurse in 1962 at the Peter Bent Brigham School of Nursing in Boston. Her love of the mountains drew her west to Colorado, where she worked as a nurse at the University of Colorado Health Sciences Center. She continued her education at Metropolitan State College in Denver, where she earned her Bachelor of Science degree in nursing in 1979. She then returned to Boston and earned her Master of Science degree in nursing at Boston University in 1981. After earning her MSN, Lynn worked as a clinical director of parent-child nursing at Riverside Hospital in Newport News, Virginia, for six years. She was then drawn back to New England and worked as a clinical director at Maine Medical Center. One of her proudest accomplishments was her leadership in the opening of the Barbara Bush Children's Hospital at Maine Medical Center in 1995. Lynn first visited Cape Cod with her family in 1941 and was a frequent visitor throughout her life. When she retired, she called Falmouth her home for 22 years. Until the very end, she always wanted to be at the beach or near the water. Lynn gave back to her community as a volunteer at the Falmouth Service Center for over 10 years. Lynn served her country for over 20 years and retired from the United States Army Reserve Medical Corps as a lieutenant colonel, and we thank her for that service. Lynn was predeceased by her parents, Muriel McLean Multhrop and Frederick Gilbert Multhrop, her brother Frederick and her sister-in-law Cheryl. She is survived by her brother Bruce and his children, and many loving friends and colleagues. 
Lynn loved to ski in the Colorado mountains, swim at Old Silver Beach, and travel to destinations around the world with her friends Pat and George Gales. She was a joy to be with and had a wonderful sense of humor. If you needed Lynn, she was always there for you. Thank you to the administration and staff at Heritage at Falmouth and Cahoon Care for the caring and compassionate care she received during her time with you. A graveside service will be held in Evergreen Cemetery in Watertown at a date and time to be announced. If you would like to make a donation in Lynn's memory, please consider the Falmouth Service Center on Gifford Street in Falmouth. For the online guest book, please visit the website of Chapman Funeral. Virginia H. Silva, Dateline Orleans. Virginia Ginny Silva passed away January 9th, surrounded by her family after a four-year brave battle with cancer. Ginny was born October 6, 1940, in Norwood to Gerald and Lois Ellis. In 1958, she graduated from Norwood High School and was awarded the Plimpton Scholarship, which enabled her to attend Massachusetts School of Art in Boston, where she graduated with a degree in art education. Upon graduation, she moved to Norwalk and began her career as an educator in elementary art. She met the love of her life, Joe, also a young educator, and they married in 1964. Ginny and Joe set roots in Norwalk, where they lived and raised their family for almost 40 years. After guiding her two boys through their formative years, Ginny returned to the classroom, received her graduate degree from Fairfield University, worked as an art teacher, and ultimately finishing her career in 2002, teaching in the Talented and Gifted program. She loved teaching. Running into former students brought her great joy. She enjoyed hearing about their lives, careers, and families. In 2002, Ginny and Joe retired to Orleans. There, they spent their twilight years enjoying friends, the beach, traveling together, and spending time with their grandchildren. After Joe's untimely passing in 2011, and having come to terms with his loss, Ginny began an active role as a bereavement counselor for others who experienced loss and found a true calling helping people deal with their grief. There she made wonderful lifelong friends. She loved to host lunches with friends, attend the symphony, volunteer at the local soup kitchen, and read a good mystery novel. Above all, Ginny's family was the center of her universe. She had so much pride and love for her children and grandchildren. She was an unbelievable mother and grandmother who filled her home with photos, cards, and artwork of her boys and their families. She would often say, I lived a good life. I had many people look out for me in life. I married the love of my life who gave me two wonderful boys, and they gave me beautiful grandchildren who I adore. She was a creative soul who didn't have an easy childhood, but found and saw the best in everyone. She will be greatly missed, but remembered fondly by all who knew her. Ginny was predeceased by her husband, Joe, and sister, Catherine. She is survived by her two sons, Michael and Chris, and leaves a legacy with her five grandchildren. She also leaves behind three siblings and her dear friends, Debbie and Lou Ciminello, who were always there for her. In lieu of flowers, a donation may be made in her memory to the Tunnel to Towers Foundation. Her family will receive friends today, January 12th, from 5 to 7 p.m. at the Magner Funeral Home on Mott Avenue in Norwalk. 
Her funeral mass will be held on Saturday at 10 a.m. at Our Lady of Fatima Church on Danbury Road in Wilton. Other services to be held privately. For directions or to send a message of condolence to her family, please visit the website of Magner Funeral Home. Cape Housing Agency Plans Better Service by Zane Razek of the Cape Cod Times. Dateline Hyannis. Housing Assistance Corporation plans to use a former nursing home in South Dennis to house up to 79 families, merging three family shelters in Barnstable, Falmouth, and Bourne. The existing shelters will subsequently become studios and two-bedroom year-round rentals to add to the Cape's housing stock for individuals and families. Housing Assistance Corporation CEO Alyssa Magnata said the move represents a reset for the organization, which is marking its 50th anniversary this year. It's a consolidation of our shelters and then using the assets that we already own a little differently, said Magnata during an interview Wednesday at the nonprofit's Hyannis headquarters on West Main Street. The properties will also house a new Upper Cape satellite office for the housing nonprofit's outreach and intake teams and serve as a base for an existing mental health and homeless youth program. Families currently being served at the three family shelters, Angel House and Hyannis, the Village at Katomet in Bourne, and Carriage House in North Falmouth, will move to One Love Lane in Dennis, which was South Dennis Healthcare, before closing in mid-November. According to the Housing Agency's shelter statistics, in 2022, the organization served more than 236 people, including 138 children. An average stay ranged from 9 to 12 months. The nonprofit will file plans with the Dennis Planning Board for special review on Thursday under the town's zoning bylaws for its use of the property, Magnata said. The organization has the town building commissioner's approval for the state Dover Amendment, she said. The Dover Amendment, originally adopted in 1950, mandates that proposed religious and educational land uses be given more favorable treatment than other proposed uses, such as residential, commercial, or industrial, under local zoning ordinances and bylaws, according to the Massachusetts Interlocal Insurance Association, an interlocal service of the Massachusetts Municipal Association. Currently, the plan is to open the new facility in mid-2024. Dennis Nursing Home sold in September. One Love Lane in South Den I'm sorry, One Love Lane South Dennis LLC sold the 128-bed nursing home to Housing Assistance Corporation for $4.3 million, according to a deed recorded with the Barnstable County Registry of Deeds on September 28th. Magnata said the housing nonprofit was approached by the former property owner's broker in January 2023 to buy the site. She said the nursing home operator struggled amid a labor crunch exacerbated by the lack of affordable housing. The owner was seeing that it was likely to go into fiscal receivership. It was likely going to have to close abruptly and with drama around it, said Magnata. South Dennis Healthcare was operated by Woburn-based Next Step Healthcare, which has closed several facilities in recent years, including one in Wareham in 2021 and one in Dedham in 2022. As of January 1st, Housing Assistance Corporation officially has site control and can now speak publicly about the planned use, Magnata said. New Shelter in Dennis 
The 57,000-square-foot building is in tip-top shape, said Magnata. Extensive work is not required, but the housing nonprofit plans to work with an architect and other consultants to renovate and redesign the site for its new use. Once the dentist shelter is complete, Magnata said clients will be able to access many different services there, <clears throat> with plans including food programs, playgroups, tutoring, medical care, and more. She's also eyeing the property's full-size professional kitchen for job training opportunities. The clients aren't just seeing us. They're not just living in our building. They're talking to WIC and other housing agencies and healthcare agencies, said Magnata. Having the clients go to a bunch of different locations and talk to a bunch of different providers is really hard for them and cumbersome and often delays the client's progress. 24-hour shelter staff and security will also be available, as well as education, case management, and public transportation. Magnata said the plan is not meant to address the migrant housing crisis. That's not our mission. Our mission is about creating year-round housing and making sure that we're available with our resources for year-round Cape Codders and people who live on the islands, said Magnata. Plans for Permanent Housing Meanwhile, the housing nonprofit's existing family shelters will be turned into permanent housing units. Angel House and Hyannis will become nine two-bedroom apartments and the Homeless Youth Program. A lot of the homeless system is set up for adults, said Cassie Danzel, the Chief Operating Officer for Housing Assistance Corporation. Having an 18, 19, 20, 21-year-old go in there is a very intimidating experience. This will allow us to not necessarily utilize those resources that are designed for adults and have a home specifically designed for youth. The village at Katomet in Bourne will house 18 studios and the nonprofit's Upper Cape office. The carriage house in North Falmouth will likely be rented out by another housing agency for a year-round program. Magnata said she hopes the new plan will help boost her staff's morale. We're turning families away from housing. The best tool we have is go stay living in your car because we have no place. We have no options. For us to open up these 18 studios and nine two bedrooms and the homeless youth we know are couch surfing or worse, it's really incredibly significant for us, said Magnata. State Board OK's Reimbursement Increase for Child Care Providers by Denise Coffey of the Cape Cod Times. The State Board of Early Education and Care voted Wednesday to increase rate reimbursements for child care providers who accept state subsidies and vouchers. Providers on the Cape will see the second largest increase among the state's six regions. Advocates have long said the Cape's reimbursement rates were not in keeping with the cost of providing care and that they lagged far behind rates in other regions of the state. The unanimous board decision, based on more than 18 months of data research and analysis, proved them right. The increases would be an effective solution to challenges facing CAPE providers to both improve child care access and attract and retain educators, Noel Pina, Chief of Staff at the Cape Cod Chamber of Commerce, said in an email. Senior Associate Commissioner for Policy, Research, and Data Analytics, Amy Checkaway, with the State Early Education and Care Department, said the proposal was based on price-of-care market rate surveys as well as cost-of-care data collected through primary and secondary sources. Federal rules require states to use a market rate survey 
or an alternative methodology to set reimbursement rates, an intention to set more equitable rates. The department worked on an alternative methodology for setting rates that would be more equitable across age groups, geographic regions, and type of care provided, Checkaway said. Massachusetts is now one of six states with federal approval to use an alternative methodology to set reimbursement rates for child care financial assistance, Checkaway said. Child care center-based rates differ according to age and geographic region. Rates are set for infant, toddler, preschool, and school-age children. The state's six geographic regions are Boston, Metro Boston, Northeast, Southeast, Central, and Western. Reimbursement rates are highest in Boston, Metro Boston, and the Northeast, according to the State Executive Office of Education. Cape Cod among areas to receive rate increases. Rates in the Central, Southeast, and Western regions have had the lowest reimbursement rates for years. The Cape belongs to the Southeast region, which spreads from Brockton to Fall River to Provincetown. Wednesday's decision will mean those three regions will see some of the biggest increases. On the Cape, the daily per-child reimbursement rate for infants will increase 34%, from $72.37 to $97.18. The rates for toddlers would increase 11%, from $67.89 to $75.48, according to information released from the Executive Office of Education. The increases will be paid for using $65 million already allocated in the fiscal 2024 budget. Providers will start seeing the increases in February. They'll be retroactive to July 1, 2023. The rate package includes three key features, a 5.5% cost of living adjustment, rate consolidation using market rate and cost of care data, and raising center-based program rates to 81% of cost of care. The rate increases were arrived at by first adding a 5.5% across-the-board cost-of-living adjustment. Rates were consolidated across the six regions. Boston and Metro Boston consolidated into one rate. Central, Southeast, and Western rates consolidated into one rate. The Northeast remained separate. Remaining budgetary resources were used to increase center-based rates to 81% of the highest cost of care in the group, according to Adrienne Murphy, Director of Analytics for the Department of Early Education and Care. Rates in the Western and Central regions have been raised to the same dollar amount as those in the Southeast. Reimbursement rates for Boston, Metro Boston, and the Northeast received smaller increases percentage-wise, but remain higher. Early Education and Care Commissioner Amy Kershaw said the proposal moves the state in the right direction by focusing on the cost rather than just the price of care. Final approval of the rate adjustment is subject to bargaining negotiations with Service Employees International Union 509, which represents family child care providers. Today's Ask Carolyn column is headlined, Do They Tell a Recently Engaged Friend She Can Do So Much Better? Dear Carolyn, My friend Mia recently got engaged. She and Steve have been together since right before COVID, and she's been wanting to get married for a long time. However, Steve is terrible. None of her close friends like him or think he's right for her. Two examples of many. Mia always wanted kids, but Steve didn't. 
All of a sudden, she changed her mind about it. He also drinks and does drugs, mostly party drugs, a lot, while she's a homebody, and we recently learned she dropped acid with him because he was pushing her to. He dims her sparkle, and everyone sees that except her. It's gotten to the point where we have started not inviting her to certain things because we knew he'd be there. Steve doesn't even seem to be excited about their engagement, let alone the wedding. He made a comment recently about if it even happens. Her oldest and best friend once questioned the relationship, and Mia said that if Steve ever left her, she'd die. As a group, all her girlfriends want to tell her this guy sucks and she could do so much better. But we also know her well enough to know we could easily lose her. How do we choose between telling her our feelings and risking her friendship? Signed, Conflicted. Dear Conflicted, preserving your friendship is important, but it's much less of a worry than preserving Mia. For all the red flags around Steve flapping like a human United Nations, Mia's I die is way more alarming. Maybe hyperbole is her thing. You're better able to put it in context than I am. But we have that statement, plus a decent case for Steve's awfulness, plus her long-term focus on getting married, which tends to crowd out any incentive to be picky about the to whom part. Plus, we have her bending to Steve's will on things that are out of character, off her life path, and unsafe. These add up to real peril for Mia. And while I am super-duper sympathetic to finding Steve so terrible that you'll drop Mia to be rid of him, you and her other friends heighten her risk when you do that. Abuse math is vicious. When Steve drives her off people, she'll have no one but Steve, depend on him more, and feel less able to leave and take more abuse. Mia needs her friend's love. She needs her, your eyes on her. She needs your steady presence as a reminder that she matters to each of you specifically, to all of you together, and to the universe just because. Coordinate if you can so she's covered and you're all sharing the weight. She also needs to hear how she appears through your eyes. I'm worried. I see you losing your sparkle and feel helpless to fix it. So I'll just say this. I'm here for you 24-7 when you're ready. Say it one-on-one, -on -one, kindly, with an eye to planning this idea in her heart versus persuading her this very instant. Also, be clear this is concern, not criticism. And make no mention of Steve. If she's already not receptive to everyone's assessments of how terrible he is, then stop. Even if your dimmed sparkle talk upsets her, too, at least she'll know she has someone she can ask for help. Fingers crossed. Mindful Eating, Drafting a Plan of Cape Cod Restaurants and Foods to Eat by Gwen Friss of the Cape Cod Times. Did you make resolutions for 2024? While many people focus on moving more and cutting back on calories, there's also something to be said for eating mindfully. Making a list of savory and sweet treats and making the time to enjoy them at least once in the coming year. Here are five things I plan to eat in 2024. There may be a second list come summer because eating seasonally is one of my favorite things and Cape Cod is filled with summer-only restaurants. Maple Bacon Donut in Barnstable 
A visit to the Buttercup Cafe's Facebook page shows that this specialty was still on the menu at year's end. A photo displays it in all its glory with maple glaze dripping down the sides and small shards of bacon standing on top looking like a skyline from the Lord of the Rings, the Two Towers. The Buttercup Cafe is on Main Street in Barnstable near the Barnstable County Complex and is often busy at breakfast. But as someone who loves the combination of sweet and salty, this donut looks worth the wait. Dinner for land and sea lovers in Dennis. I've eaten at Encore Bistro and Bar a few times, but what I will never forget is the restaurant Salmon from the Faroe Islands, a group of islands in the North Atlantic between Iceland and the Shetland Islands. The region is known for its supple but creamy salmon, and this was no exception. Sadly, it is not on the current menu, but with great confidence in Encore's ability to perfectly cook seafood, I plan to go old school and try the Cod Omard, $42, thick-cut cod baked and topped with lobster and Ritz cracker crumbs covered in beurre blanc. For the landlubbers, there is a half rack of lamb ribs for $40 with a mustard and herb crust and a port demi-gloss. Encore is located on Route 6A in Dennis on the grounds of the Cape Playhouse and is open for dinner during the winter. Restaurant-made lobster ravioli in Hyannis. The Peruvian restaurant Tumi Ceviche Bar and Restaurante serves lunch, which allows guests to order a good-sized portion at a competitive price. Last time I visited, I had the lobster risotto for $19.99 and loved it. Next visit, I am planning to try the lobster ravioli. Described on the menu as homemade ravioli stuffed with ricotta cheese, spinach, fresh lobster meat, light Dijon mustard sauce, grilled artichokes, shaved pecorino cheese for $15.99. Tucked into an alley off Main Street in Hyannis with courtyard seating in season, the colorful Peruvian-inspired tiles and art made me feel transported and lent itself to a leisurely lunch. Pizza with a history in Provincetown. The pizza at Spiritus reminds me of New York City slices, thin-crusted and pliable, easy to fold and eat on a folded paper plate. And, as in New York City, Spiritus keeps long hours, 11.30 a.m. to 2 a.m. daily. You can grab a slice before seeing a show or after. Centrally located on Commercial Street in P-Town, Spiritus is crowded and pleasantly from lunch and on. The convenience is great, and it's kind of neat that Spiritus has been open since 1971 that the restaurant focuses local on the local arts, that there is ice cream for dessert. But the big thing for me is the pizza. Having enjoyed a red sauce pie on a previous visit, I plan to next try the no-sauce Italian garden for $31, which has pesto, ricotta cheese, artichoke hearts, and sun-dried tomatoes. Don't forget that Spiritus is cash only. Being delivered fresh daily in Chatham. I often kid that I could be a vegetarian if it weren't for really good steak, prepared by people who know how to cook it better than me. One of the best meals I ever ate was a Hollywood lunch several years ago at which celebrity chef Wolfgang Puck served three small pieces of Wagyu beef, each with a different pea-sized paste of what you might call sauce, along with a salad and dinner roll. Simple and exquisite. 
This leads me to the Chatham Cut, which advertises itself as the best steakhouse on Cape Cod. Maybe the only Cape restaurant specializing in different cuts of beef delivered daily. Prices range from $44 for a 6-ounce filet to $100 for a 32-ounce porterhouse, with pasta and seafood dishes priced more moderately. The massive hike in beef prices that, I, that started during the pandemic means I won't be eating a lot of beef, but the memory of Puck's petite luncheon drives my desire to at least visit the Chatham Cut at 1200 Main Street. A Cape Cod Library's Most Borrowed Books of 2023. Did you read any? By Gwen Friss of the Cape Cod Times. Curious about what the neighbors were reading most last year, we asked officials at Sturgis Library in Barnstable to share the 10 most borrowed books of 2023. True, Sturgis is a small library with 55 people borrowing its top circulated book, Lessons in Chemistry, but it is also a historical gem near the center of Cape Cod. At 3090 Main Street, the library is in what was built as the house of Reverend John Lothrop in 1644 and lays claim to being the oldest building in America to house a public library. If you're looking for something to read in 2024, here's a list of Sturgis's most borrowed and renewed books along with a brief description of each. Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus. The Personal Librarian by Marie Benedict and Victoria Murray. Demon Copperhead by Barbara Kingsolver. Hello Beautiful by Anne Napolitano. The Mountains Sing by Wen Fan Quimai. The Dove Keepers by Alice Hoffman. Horse by Geraldine Brooks. The Boys from Biloxi by John Grisham. The Plot by Jean Hoff Korolitz. And The Marriage Portrait by Maggie O'Farrell. With the constitutionality of book bans in the news and recently before the U.S. Supreme Court, we asked Sturgis Library Director Lucy Loomis if any of the 10 most popular books from last year were the subject of bans. Loomis said Sturgis had received attempts to have some books banned, though not the ones on this list. But the request came from people in other states. In response, Sturgis was one of the Cape Cod libraries that last year met with the Massachusetts Board of Library Commissioners and adopted a policy which sets out requirements for changes in its collection policy, including one saying only local residents can request a book be banned. While none of these books have been challenged locally, as far as I know, the book Horse by Geraldine Brooks got some negative commentary for her portrayal of the Black characters in the story, Loomis emailed, referring to an article in the Atlantic magazine. The New York Times review of the book by Pulitzer Prize-winning Brooks of Martha's Vineyard also addressed the issue of race in her work. And that's all I have time for today. This is your reader Libby saying thank you for listening.